for us to have that opportunity. We're going to look at Luke 10 and also Luke 11 a little bit. And uh, I will include Matthew because Luke doesn't record the full, what we would think of as all of the Lord's Prayer that you're familiar with. And I do want to say some things about the other part, even though we may not read that, that part. I, I want you to understand something uh, because today the, 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 the name of uh, this sermon, what, what I want you to see, we're talking about the Lord's Prayer but the sentence I want you to take home with you today is this. We must have a desire to learn what we think we already know. So many times we think we already know everything, and we don't. I looked this up because in 1976, my sister graduated from Medical University of South Carolina, located in Charleston, with an a RN degree in, in nursing. She went on later to get her master's from the same uh, university, but she, but I remember I was only 16 when that happened, um, and I remember her telling me that they told them, told her in the graduating class, that what they had just learned over the past four years, half of it was obsolete. That the knowledge available to be learned was speeding up. So that led me to do a Google search about how fast that is. Did you know that today, the knowledge available to be learned apart from the internet is doubling every 12 months? With the internet, it's doubling every 12 hours. In fact, you go to Google because Google knows everything, right? Google contains 0.004% of everything on the internet. That is four one-thousandths of available knowledge you can find it on Google. That's crazy. Now, that was what I read. It said 2023, so I don't know when it came out, but I only had a couple weeks for it to come out. So it's pretty recent because it's happened so fast, it might be faster now. I don't know. You may look it up and go, it's even faster. Well, that just happened today. So, so do you think you know everything about any subject? No, of course not. We, we, we do not. It's, it's mind-blowing what is out there. And we haven't even started to approach what God knows. Right? Yeah, exactly. And what God could know. And God knows what would happen if. You know that, right? If, they, if we'd have done that differently, what would happen? He knows what that would be. Because that's how smart he is, right? That's, he has all knowledge. So you say, well, why are you saying all that when you're talking about prayer? Because I don't want you to think you know everything about prayer. I don't think anybody here does. I think all of us would say, man, I need to know more about prayer. I need to learn more about prayer. So I, I want you to see what sets up the disciples asking Jesus about prayer. And that is found in chapter 10. And I, I don't have, I can't read the whole text. But this is the story of when he sent out 72 people. 72 disciples. And that, look at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. God always sends someone in advance of him showing up. We have people that are struggling and working in places where they're wondering, is God ever going to show up? You know, they're struggling through that. And God bless them that they have the tenacity to hang in there. Because God will show up. It may be after they're dead and another person comes in. We, we, we never know. But we don't have the, the, the right or privilege 
to quit. We have to continue fighting as long as we, as long as we, we can fight. But I, something else I want you to notice, we tend to think about the 12 disciples, and we know one of those was a bad egg, right? So we, Jesus was working with 11 people, right? No, he had 72 he could send out. There's even more than that. When we get to Acts chapter 1, there's 130, something like that. I think uh, the numbers leave me, but there's over 100 people in the upper room uh, together praying. And, and so I want you to understand there were more people hanging out around Jesus and learning than just the 12. And so when you understand that, he sends out 72. And, they, and, in, and, and in the first couple of verses here, he tells them what to do uh, or what to, what to carry. Uh, in verse 2, he said, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. To send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Well, now that's encouraging. You know, we all want safety. God says, you're safe. Because when you die, I'm going to bring you here. So don't worry about it. Just go do it. Even if it kills you. Can you imagine a lamb in the midst of a pack of wolves? That's amazing. But God is good. He can do what he wants and... He has done great things, and some people get to honor God by the way they die. But verse 4, he says this, don't carry a money bag. Don't carry a knapsack. Don't carry any extra sandals. Greet no one on the road, and whatever house you enter, say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it'll return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Don't skip around. You know, like, ooh, they got a better meal over there. I'm going there. Stay, stay with the guy that lets you in. And then he says, when you go into town and they receive you, eat what's set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Because Jesus has come into that town. And then he says, whenever you enter town and they don't receive you, go in the street and say, even the dust of the town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable in the day of Sodom than for that. In other words, when God says, hey, I want to talk to you, you ought to go, yes, sir. What? Speak. I'm, I'm ready to hear. And then he, 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 we have this kind of sermon. We don't know how long they were gone, but they come back. And I want you to skip down there um, to verse 17. Well, actually, we, we can go to verse, um, yeah, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, in studying other passages, I learned that in that day, there were people that just went around trying to cast out demons. They would have a formula, the mainly Jewish priests. But there were also other just exorcists that would try to cast out demons. And we read about a hilarious story in the book of Acts that there were seven brothers that used to do this. And they had heard about Paul preaching Jesus and throwing out demons. So they go in a house and say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demon's response was, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? <laughs> and they jumped on, beat him up, ran him out. So you're going to get into that. You better know Jesus yourself and be following him, not use somebody else's names. But these, these guys, he sends them out. We don't know much about them, like how much they've been learning and all that. But he tells them what to do. And they come back going, it's amazing. Because people are being healed and demons are being thrown out. But I want you to catch what Jesus responds. In verse 18, he said, 
I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. That is, that is not necessarily literal serpents and scorpions. This is kind of a metaphorical term for the most evil one and other evil creatures and beings. The great serpent, the snake, the dragon. So they have, we have authority over these things. And over, and I mean, if you need authority over a snake, God gave Paul that when he, when he built a fire in Mylita and snake came out, bit him, and he just shook it off, and everybody thought he was a god because he didn't swell up. But it says, and nothing shall hurt you. And then verse twenty. Nevertheless, don't rejoice about this. You got all that. You think you have all this power. Where did that power come from? Yeah, from God, from, from, from the Holy Spirit. Uh, filled them to be able to do that. He said, so don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. How many preachers are on TV and all today trying to show off that they have power over sickness and demons and all of that? Jesus said, don't rejoice about that. You, you do that. You, that might be part of your ministry. You have to do it. But don't run around going, yeah, I, I can beat them all. You're going to be like those seven sons of Sceva and, you know, get, get your pride handed back to you. But rejoice, your names are written in heaven. That's the miracle. We who did not deserve it, our names are written in heaven. He said, that's what you ought to be rejoicing about. Now, I've been so excited to get to this next verse. There's two verses today I've been waiting to get to. This is one on verse 17. Look at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. And then he goes on, and the prayer is, I thank you that you've hidden this from the wise, from the strong. People think they know what they're doing, and you revealed it unto babes. These people went out spiritually mature like babies, like lambs in the midst of wolves, and saw the lambs beat the wolves. I mean, NFL's in the playoffs right now, right? And you may be pulling for an underdog. All my underdog teams are out of it. Okay, so I'll just tell you. I, I, have, I don't care now. I, they're all gone. So... You got a team, I'll cheer for your team. I don't care anymore. But the underdog won here. And Jesus is rejoicing that these innocent, vulnerable people, God had revealed himself in power to them. Do you think God wants to reveal his power in us? So what kind of people should, ought we to be? Maybe we ought to be humble. Maybe we ought to be understanding that we are needful would you say but here's the word i wanted you to catch it says jesus rejoiced so i thought you know what it might be good if i looked that word up since i'm going to be talking about being willing to learn what you think you already know i thought i knew what that word meant i didn't it is a combination of two words in the greek language the original language of the new testament one word means again and the other word means to jump so what happens when you jump again? Woo! <laughs> you say, don't talk about Jesus like that. Really? Ah, uh, he was a man. Now, was he literally jumping up and down? I'm not saying that. But the word says that's possible. And guess what? This is the only reference in the Bible that says this. There's no other place than by words. Did Jesus have joy other times? I'm sure he did. But it's an overwhelming joy. It's not a joy that goes, 
Yes, we're so excited. <laughs> I mean, I know people that think the American Gothic picture, those people are a little too excited. You know what I'm saying? You may not, American Gothic pictures, those two, the farmer, you know, and his wife with the pitchfork, and they're just so serious. It looks like my uncles and aunts from my dad's side. No, he jumped with joy. Can you imagine that? Jesus jumping with joy over what was accomplished. And the disciples see him praying to the Father with that kind of enthusiasm. And some other things happen, and we come to chapter 11. And look at chapter 11 and verse 1. And Jesus was praying in a certain place. There again, Jesus is praying. They saw him pray after this victory. Now he's done some more teaching. They come to a new place. And there he is praying. Jesus is always praying wherever he goes, before he goes, after he gets there. And he's praying again. And these disciples, they had learned how to pray. They, they were religious guys. They'd been to synagogue. They knew how to, you know, we teach our kids how to pray. And sometimes we teach them little prayers and things. But there was something about when Jesus prayed that they noticed. And they said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? I, I'm sure there's some places. By the way, I, I need to say this. I should have said it at the very beginning. I stole most of this from a guy named John Lewis. He lives in South Carolina. He's not even a pastor. He just writes sermons, puts them out there, and says, go ahead. And I found the ideas of this from him. So I just want to give him credit because you can go Google that, and then you're going to find it and go, man, that preacher, he didn't do much work today. <clears throat> but it was really good. This part that I'm coming to is... is it's part uh, that, he, that he was helping us with. They wanted to learn from Jesus, not because it was a rote prayer, but because he was full of joy in the Holy Spirit. I mean, these, I'm sure the, the rabbis, they had certain prayers. We here, remember, not long ago, we prayed written prayers, Puritan prayers. Remember that? We'd have people come up and we would pray those prayers. Nothing wrong with doing that, but there was something about the way Jesus was praying. They said, can, can you help us learn? I, we all learn to pray, sometimes by somebody else's example. Uh, you know, somebody else is praying. We go, boy, I like that phrase, or I like the way they did that. And so, but, but we're learning from another fallible human. Sometimes we say we, we say we learn from trial and error. Like, well, well, you don't know how to pray, just pray more. Well, because, you know why? It's because we believe practice makes perfect, but it doesn't. Perfect practice makes perfect. If you're practicing wrong, you learn how to do it wrong very well. <laughs> so we need perfect practice. And they saw Jesus praying and said, that looks perfect. Lord, show us how you do that. And so Jesus didn't give us a rote prayer to pray. He gave us a pattern that involves a relationship to learn. So I want to just expose that pattern and relationship to you this morning. And so first is the attitude, the, the pattern. And first of all, in the prayer, and, and here it is in, in Luke 11... In verse 2, he said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not to temptation. Now, the one in Matthew, and it's chapter um, 6, uh, yeah, it's Matthew chapter 6, that is the longer prayer, and our modern versions have taken some out because uh, the, the oldest manuscripts that we now have don't have it in there, but they're not doing any violence to the truth. So we're going we're gonna to talk about the whole thing. You, I could start it and wrote, we could all say the Lord's Prayer. And so I want you to catch what he's doing here. First of all, there's the attitude of tenderness. 
In our version, it says Father, but there's an understood thing. And Jesus actually did say this. He said, Our Father. Why is that important? I'll tell you why. And I'm certainly glad you asked. The, the way they had been taught, they were not taught to address God as Father. They'd been taught to address Him as God, but then they were so afraid to even say His name, even though He told us to do it. They wouldn't even do it. They were very careful. They would use a generic term. They didn't want to use his actual personal name. And Jesus would pray and say, Father, or my Father, but not here. This is where he introduces our Father. When he said that, the disciples caught on, wait a minute. Are you saying he's our dad too? Because this is a very tender term. It just means Father. But it's, it's not like Father. I grew up around the corner from an Episcopal church. When we were teenagers, we'd go out door to door knocking. And one of my friends knocked on the door of the guy who was the pastor of that church. And they, it was an Episcopal church, which came out of the Anglican church. And his name was Father, Father Garvin. So Father Garvin came to the door. And my friend said, hi, my name is, and I'm from this church, this Baptist church. And we're out in the neighborhood talking to people. And I wanted to ask you a question. If you died today, do you know where you would go? And he said, son, I'm the pastor of St. Peter's by the Sea Episcopal Church. He said, well, I appreciate that, but I didn't ask you that. (laughs) What I asked you was, if you died right now, do you know where you would go? And he said, my name is Father Garvin. I am a, a, you know, right reverend, holy reverend, whatever they call it. And he said, yeah, I, I, I get that, but that's not what I asked you. And he asked him again. He said, what's your pastor's name? I'm going to call him. He said, Here's his name, here's his phone number, and if you call him, this is before cell phones, if you call him, what he's going to ask you is, if you died right now, do you know <laughs> where you would go? He never would answer the question. Close the door. God said, Jesus said, don't call any man on earth your father. Does that mean I don't call my dad my father? No, of course not. What he's saying is, don't give anybody because God is our father. You see, God wants exclusive rights to our entire life. There's no part he doesn't own. But when we pray to him, we don't have to say, holy, judgmental God's going to blast me with a lightning bolt if I say this wrong. No, we go and say, hey, Dad. Now, I think we ought to do that with respect. I don't think we ought to just flippantly say anything like that. But we need to understand that it's an attitude of tenderness This is where Jesus reveals to us he's our father, not just his father. Secondly, his attitude of reverence. He who dwells in heaven. This is no earthly father. I mean, we feared our earthly fathers. Uh, I hope you had to do that. But we're created in God's image. We're created in our dad's image. There's a lot about my dad in me. There's a lot about my dad and my son. A lot about me and my son. We inherit a lot of things. But if we've been born again, we should inherit the image of God or the, or the character of God. But we never forget that he is qualitatively different than any earthly father we have. That we have an earthly father who probably taught you good things and helped you out a lot. But our father in heaven is the one that supplied them and wants to supply us with everything we need. God was my father's God and father and He's my God and Father as well. And who my Father reached out to, I can reach out to. I'll tell you this. I'm going to brag on somebody that you may have met. He's been here a couple times, but you may not have. But we're talking about fathers. It's Pastor Stephen's father. His name's Mike. 
I've never been around Mike. He didn't start with prayer. Before you left, he ended with prayer. He never went hunting with you without praying before he went out on the field. Thank God afterwards. He just prayed, 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 prayed. He, he took care of the food closet at our church. And everybody showed up. Asked, he witnessed to him, prayed with him. Asked God to help him. There's a praying man. He's praying for you right now. He's praying for me right now probably. That man is a man of prayer. And I thank God for that, that, that thing. And what a father. And we get to call God our father, right? Even greater than that. And also an attitude of respect. Hallowed be thy name is how we learn it. It means your name is holy. You are thrice holy. Holy means to be separate, to be separated from evil. He is, the Bible says he's of pure eyes and to look upon sin. God is thrice holy. He's perfectly holy. He's perfect. There's nobody that comes close to God. He is all alone in who he is. He's God, as the preacher said, all by himself. He doesn't need anything, doesn't need anybody else. He is completely holy. And we need to remember that. We need to come with tenderness, with reverence, and with respect. You are holy. And then an attitude of devotion. Your kingdom come. You know, it'd be kind of difficult to approach God if our life is at odds with the ministry of his kingdom. Because you're in rebellion. We'd be monstrous hypocrites if we were hindering and thwarting the kingdom of God by something we're doing or saying and then dare call him father and that he's holy and that he's in heaven. You know, we, we come to a place where we go, what is it you want, Lord? I'm here to give it, whatever you ask. We have to come to that place where God is number one alone in our life. And whatever he says, that's what we obey. And we don't play around with stuff that's not of him. There's also an attitude of humbleness. Thy will, not my will be done, right? Thy will be done, we pray. We give up our own will. We're, we're called to give up a life, our life, and our will for his will to be accomplished. Because we all have desires. We all have things we want, right? But to pray for his will is to say, Lord, I want the job you want me to have. I want the spouse you want me to have. I want the friends you want me to have. I want to be in the church you want me to be in. I want to have a ministry that you give me, not what I want to do, but what is your will? And when we hand God a blank piece of paper, he'll fill it in. I appreciate what Stephanie said about buying the building and moving in and hopefully being there by April. She said, that's my plan. I don't know what God's plan is. And I thought about that saying people have that says, if you want to make God laugh, tell him what you plan to do. <laughs> in fact, James tells us, don't say, hey, this is our plan. We're going to go here. We're going to do this and do that. He says, say, if God wills, that's what we're going to do. Because God's will is better than our will. Does he know more than you? Does he love you more than you love yourself? Did he make you so he knows what is best for you? So don't you think you ought to let him tell you what that is? <laughs> He's better at it than all of us, right? So when we pray, we pray, thy will be done. And, and, and so we come to a relationship in this praying. Because there's a relationship of thankfulness. Give us this day our daily bread. And when we get food from him every day, when we get what we need for today, we are grateful. We are thankful. You know there are billions of people going without today. Many of them believers. And they pray and ask God. And they are 
thankful for what God gives. I, I, we, we have an abundance, and so we become a little bit spoiled. Well, I say a little bit. We've become spoiled. We've become greatly spoiled. And when you, listen, you won't know God's all you need until God's all you got. And some of you never have been there. And some of you have. We have to depend on God for our daily needs. We can't, I can't work tomorrow on today's grace. I got to, God only gives me grace for today. And I got to work today on that grace. And so once we give up our will to his will, he takes responsibility for us. He says, oh, thank you. I will, uh, I'll make the best choices for you now. My choices are better than yours. I'm going to help you out. Well, there's also a relationship of forgiveness. He forgave us, so we ought to forgive others. In Luke 6, 28, um, he talks about forgiving others. And if we don't forgive others, he won't forgive us, according to this prayer. We've got to let go of our hurts, our grudges, and our hatred toward people that wronged us. That's hard to do. I, I guarantee you as a human, as an American human, that's really hard to do. Right? We've got some little sayings about all that, a bunch of them. But as a Christian, we're called to forgive. And in fact, scary words, if you don't forgive others their sins against you, I'm not going to forgive you your sins. So I thought I was already forgiven. Well, if you're forgiven, you'll forgive. If you're not forgiven, you won't forgive. Some of us have a lot to forgive others of. Some of us have a little to forgive others of. But it's not the quantity, it's the act. And, and that's, a, that's a hard point for me. And I, I, I come from a lot of Irish people, and they all have Irish Alzheimer's. They forget everything but the grudge. They don't know why they're fighting, they just know they're fighting. They're going to keep doing it. We have to forgive. We have a relationship of awareness. By the way, all of these things are on the app, and the, you just go to sermons, and there's the written form of it, and you can get this list. But there's a relationship of awareness. Temptations and trials deliver us from evil. Lead us not to temptation. There's two, temp, there's two meanings of this word. Can God actually tempt us? Because James says God doesn't tempt us. He's not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt us with evil. So what is, this, what is Jesus saying in this prayer? Well, this word means, one, mean, one part of the word means it is a trial. And another translation of the word, it is, a, it is something that leads to evil or an enticement to do evil. So in the first meaning, God, God, doesn't, God doesn't tempt us to do evil, but he does try us in our trials. He, he takes us into a hard place so that we can depend on him. And I, I think I referenced this before, but you remember Jesus looks at Peter and says, Hey, Peter, Satan's desired to have you. Hey, thanks for the warning. Well, it is only a warning because I didn't stop him. But I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you get through it, strengthen your brothers also. Uh, Lord, couldn't you just kind of like stop him? <laughs> I could, but that won't be good for you. You got to go through this. But I pray that you won't fail, that you'll succeed. And so sure enough, Peter failed and then he succeeded. And he preached on Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved. The second part, God will, by the way, God will never lead you into anything he won't lead you back out of. So if you find yourself in the middle of, you know, like you're trying to wade through hell by the acre, just understand you're going to get through it if you don't quit. He will get you through it. But in the second case, we are the source of evil in our life. So I thought that was the devil. 
Well, again, back in James. We sin because we desire for ourselves. And when sin gives birth, or when our desire gives birth, it gives birth to sin. So we bring the evil into our own life. And so the Lord said, Lord, don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Help us to get through these things that, that come into our life. There's a relationship. Uh, that's awareness. You ought to be aware of that. There's a relationship of helplessness because only God can deliver us from sin. Only God can deliver us from the evil in, uh, that, that might come into our life. In a close relationship to God, we recognize sin. If you're not walking with God, you may not know what sin looks like. Sin becomes very evident in the presence of God. But when we're looking at other sinners, it gets a little blurry, doesn't it? We compare ourselves to other people. Uh, Vance Havner said, when God's white sheep are dirty gray, it makes the black sheep feel a lot better. God saved us to be holy. Part of our salvation is to have victory over sin. We're not going to have total victory. I'll give you a little story in a minute. But, but we should be overcoming as we grow in Christ. There, there was a guy and, and there, there was a church that taught that once you became a Christian, you did not sin. And this fellow wanted not to sin anymore. So he asked, would they baptize him? That at baptism, your sins are washed away and you won't even be tempted to sin anymore. So, well, yeah, I had relatives as part of a church like that. So he said, I got relatives as part of every church. It's just about your name. So he said, hey, I want to be baptized. Well, the river was frozen. And they said, man, the river's frozen. He said, I don't care. I need this. I, I, I got to overcome this sin. So they broke up. They said, okay, they broke up the ice. They baptized him. He came out. He said, I feel so good. I don't even feel cold. And the other elders looked over and said, you're going to have to do it again because now he's a liar. We, we won't get over sin without God's help, will we? There's a, there's a relationship of devotion. He's the creator over everything. He created all things. So we give God the credit. The, thine be the king, the power and the glory. He is the, the great creator of the universe. It, it is his power that brings all good things into the proper conclusions in our Lies and God alone deserves all the glory. James says that every good, perfect gift is from above, from the Father of light, in whom there's no variables nor shifting shadow. God gives us the good or everything in our life, and Romans says ultimately for the good. And so there's the pattern of prayer. Let me just quickly say again there's an attitude of tenderness, He's our Father, an attitude of reverence, He dwells in heaven, an attitude of respect, He's holy, an attitude of of devotion, your kingdom come, an attitude of humbleness. I give up my will for his will. Because we are in a relationship, a relationship of thankfulness for his provision, a relationship of forgiveness. He forgave me so I can forgive others. A relationship of awareness. There are temptations and trials. And I need to be aware of that and, and depend on God because only God can deliver us from those evils. So it's a relationship also of helplessness on our part and a relationship of devotion because we love God. Who loved us first. Now, I, I want to ask you this. I want you to think about your attitudes and relationships that you struggle with. And so, repent. 
and ask God to help you in that particular area. There's something you can do tomorrow, today, and you go home, whatever. And, and we have this pattern. And so, I want to ask you, this takes time. Go ahead and flip it over. It shows us, this is going to involve time. You don't just, tomorrow going to be great at this. But I hope you'll take this pattern and think about it as you pray. How much time are you putting into prayer? Remember, perfect practice makes perfect. I'm not saying there's a, I would say if there's a perfect way to pray, God, Jesus just gave it to us because he's a perfect man, right? Other than that, what other people have to say about prayer may be helpful, but it might not be exactly what God wants. So how much time are you giving yourself to pray? You say, well, I pray, you know, when I get a chance. Well, if it's, if it's, if it ought, it ought to be this important. If it's that important, well, I set aside time to do it. Well, I say, this is my prayer time. A minute, five minutes, whatever. And there are other ways to help, but, but I want you to think about that and maybe take this today or some part of this that you really need to work on and begin doing that tomorrow. Setting aside that time to pray. And then this week, practice it. Try it. Do it. I hope you wrote it down. Um, if you didn't, as I told you, it's on the app, the website. You can just go to sermons and the outline is there. So this list is there. So you can look at that. But we ought to be in prayer, right? I, I, I get a daily devotion uh, from Dr. Chuck Lawless. And he quoted another author this yesterday, uh, Max Licato. And he used a, a text in Mark, I think it was. And the disciples got in the boat to cross the lake and at the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus went off to pray. And in the middle of the night, they're out in the middle of the sea. And a storm comes up and he's back on the on the shore. And remember, he went to pray. And Max Lucado said, put yourself in the boat with the disciples. Wind is howling. Water's coming over the gun walls. Spray in their face. Are they afraid? Absolutely. Are they in terror? Probably. And somebody might have even asked the question, where is Jesus? He's back on the shore praying. And the Bible said, and in the next minute, he was the answer to his own prayer because the sea became a roadway and he came to the disciples. Jesus is praying for us and we're in the middle of that storm. We're in the middle of that trouble. He's praying for us. He knows right where we are. How, how big of a boat does it take or how small of a boat does it take a storm to sink when God's in it? Jesus is with us in the boat. It ain't going to sink. I know that's bad English. That's good theology. He's with us. He loves us. And when they saw that prayer life and that relationship with his father, they said, teach us to pray. His first words were, pray like this, our father. Because he loves you and he wants you. You might be here today and I, I tell you about my friend asking the question of that priest what would happen to you if you died right now he never answered it I, I wonder maybe he couldn't I don't know maybe he just thought a teenager was too punkish to be asking him such a question I don't know but I would ask you that question what would happen in the next five minutes if your life ended where are you going I don't know about you but I want to know not only where I'm going but I want to know that the place where I'm going, the one in charge there is with me now. 
And that's the promise of God. That if you trust him with eternal life, you can trust him with this life. And we trust him in prayer. That's how we come to God. We pray and we say to Jesus, and not just the words, but the intention, I want to give you everything and let you make the decisions and I want to do your will with the rest of my life. That's a growth process. We have to learn and all of that as we go because the Bible calls it being born again. It's we become new babies. It's a great thing for right to life today, right? Babies are being born. Well, when that baby's born, they need help. They need someone to take care of them. And same thing in the Christian life, that others ought to come around and help you. But God is with you. God will help you. And as we pray and we open our life to God, he will come in. He will save you. Not only that you have eternal life, but that you have an eternal presence of God in your life right now. And so I would ask you, if you died in the next minute, do you know where you're going? I don't know where I'm going because somebody else told me. I know, well, there's that. But I know because he's with me now. 